Hello and welcome back to another episode of Joe's Art History, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day, be that painting, sculpture, architecture, jewellery, design, you name it, no topic is off limits. On today's episode, I'm bringing you part two of my Art of the Deal series, where it will just be me talking to you, but I will be delving in and discussing an art dealer within the canon of art history that I feel has been influential in shaping the art world that we know and love today. In today's episode, I will be looking at an incredibly influential British art dealer who really made his name in America at the turn of the 20th century. And he's credited with being the dealer who brought the majority of European works to the Americas, particularly at the height of the industrial boom at the turn of the 20th century. He is a little controversial in his methods, but I hope you'll agree by the end of the episode, he is certainly somebody who was driven by ambition and success and was just really key in developing some strategies that today are completely normal, but were at the time completely revolutionary and had never been attempted before. He's particularly known for introducing the idea of branding into the art world, as well as patronage, and is the reason that so many of our museums across the world contain some of Europe's and indeed the world's greatest paintings. Today, we're gonna be talking about Sir Joseph Devine. Now, I'm not afraid to say that Sir Joseph Devine is one of my favorite dealers from history. And what I admire about him is his drive and his determination. And I just think, do you know what? He was a bit cheeky. And I don't know if it's because I'm Scottish, but I, I just really admire some of the things that he did and also what he was able to build from the ground up. He was not from a family of influence, but he really was the driving force for his business and really just a force to be reckoned with within the art world. But that did make him a few enemies along the way. And there's some, like I said before, there's some very large question marks around his ethics of how he conducted himself and uh, some of his methods of flattery, shall we say, with his clients. So sit back, relax, as we discuss today, part two from the Art of the Deal series, Sir Joseph Devine. So the best place to start is always the beginning. And the first question we're going to ask, who was Sir Joseph Devine? Sir Joseph Devine was a British art dealer who ran his family dealership his family's gallery called the Devine Brothers, which was started by his father, who originally set up shop in Hull. Devine was the eldest of 15 children and left school relatively early to help his father run the business from Hull. But after a while, the business took off and they moved operation to London. When Devine was a young man, he made the very astute realisation that Europe had a lot of art but Americans had a lot of money. And he convinced his father to allow him to go over to America and set up a small dealership there. 
also under the name the Devine brothers. And why this is important is because Joseph Devine spearheaded what historically is referred to as the great art drain of Europe. Now, this is exactly what it sounds like. Devine was instrumental in shifting a large portion of European master paintings. When we refer to European masters, we it's a wide variety of artists, which include Raphael, Thomas Gainsborough, Da Vinci, Peter Paul Rubens, so on and so on. So the Great Art Drain was essentially kickstarted because there was, at the turn of the 20th century, there was a sudden burst of what we would call or refer to as new money in the United States. And Devine saw this as an excellent opportunity because this was a new sort of wave of wealth within America who actually became obsessed with the art collections of Europe's great rulers. And why this worked in Devine's favour is because while the American millionaires of Devine's time couldn't become lords and ladies like they could in Europe, they could buy their family portraits and other works that they had once owned, which was a way of them strengthening their feeling of identification and equality with British nobility and with the great rulers and merchant princes of the Renaissance. Which might seem like a strange thing, but there was always, and kind of still is in some way, a bit of a taboo around the idea of new money. Whereas if you were old money, you were established and it just carried a bit more clout. And I believe this is why the air quotes here, new money of America sought to find lineage in their art collections or achieve a sense of greatness from the art which they owned. So Devine used this to his advantage, saw an opportunity and began presenting clients and filling his shop with the most incredible paintings from European masters. And as well as presenting them with the most beautiful examples of from within the canon of art history, he also provided them with a full history and provenance of a painting, just to fully cement the fact that these had once belonged to lords and ladies and people of nobility throughout Europe, which only enhanced the want for people to buy them and acquire them and hang them in their shiny new Manhattan apartments. Another appeal for providing clients with a full history and provenance, it was a way for the super rich to now fully cement themselves within the history of this painting as well. And it was not unheard of that Devine could get his hands on paintings that once belonged to King Charles I of England or Francis I of France, Madame de Pompidou, you name it, Devine could get you a painting that once belonged to these people. However, there's a little bit of question marks of hovering around his provenance and his techniques and things like that. But we'll get onto that a little bit later on in the podcast. Finally, by offering work that had a full provenance and a provenance which was linked to nobility, it, it gave clients a sense of immortality that even long after they were gone, their name would now be sat alongside the kings and queens of Europe as one of the owners of this incredible artwork long after they were gone. And it was kind of like Devine was hanging this beautiful bait in front of these uber wealthy and meeting that sort of deep desire of clout and lineage, which they just didn't seem to have, which might seem strange to us, but I don't know. Having, not being a millionaire myself, 
I don't know what you go through when when you when you get new money. Um, and it was by dangling these beautiful must-have paintings that Devine would then hit his clients with some classic Devine selling techniques. And these were what made Devine so infamous and why people believe him to be the most incredible art dealer within the history of art. So he not only provided top quality works to the uber wealthy, and the uber wealthy at this time ranged from railway tycoons to the millionaire bankers. And one of his best clients was JP Morgan. He would also then provide a full history of the painting for the work to suddenly become unavailable or reserved for a different client, which of course always naturally led to a sale. This is just one of the things that Devine used to do and what he's very infamous for. But there's some other things as well that he used to do, which go hand in hand with Devine being one of the best dealers within the history of art. He was also the, the first dealer to bring in the idea of VIP treatment for his clients. So dinners, private views, sending bottles of champagne to their table at restaurants, flowers, boxes at the opera, hotel suite upgrades, you name it. Devine did it if he thought it would sweeten the deal. Another thing that Devine used to do, which is a technique which is still used to do in, in galleries, is to send a work to a client's house before they've even paid for it. Now, this was a classic technique of Devine, which the dealer found more often than not resulted in a sale. And as someone who has seen this technique be used personally, I would stand by Devine and saying, it's a very good technique. So Devine would call up a client and declare that he had just got this brand new work in. It was incredible. They absolutely had to see it and he'd be sending it over for their apartment to view. But what he would normally do is contact his client as the work was already three quarters of the way to their apartment anyway. So even if they were saying, we're not going to be in or we're going to go out, they had no option but to accept the work. And as I've said, I've seen it happen before. Once it was in their space or once it's in a client's space, it resulted in a sale. Another technique which Devine is known for is exclusive access to his works. So as well as these VIP private viewings and dinners at his gallery, he would also show clients works, make them completely fall in love with it by spinning these huge elaborate stories of their histories, where they used to be displayed. As the clients completely fell in love with it, he would say, oh, but what a shame it's reserved for somebody else and they're willing to pay well over the asking price, which of course, clients were only too keen after falling in love with something to pay way above what Devine was asking for it. And this became known as paying a Devine price for an artwork. Another more controversial thing that Devine used to do was spy on his clients. Yep, he used to spy on his clients. So what he used to do was he would pay household staff of his wealthy clients so these were maids, chefs, nannies. He would employ these people to drip feed him information about where this family would be, be that restaurants, be that operas, shows. And then he would, air quotes here, accidentally run into them, particularly if they were going on holiday, he would make sure that a bottle of champagne would be sitting in their room waiting for them with a big note saying it was from him. So they knew that he was thinking about them and that he had a new work for them, that he'd be delighted to show them 
once they were back. I don't know how well that would go on how that how well that would work today. Like I said, personally working in the art world, there's a lot of exclusivity. You have to be very quiet about who buys certain things. But for Devine, this wasn't an option. He needed to lavish his clients and gifts and it worked for him. Another interesting technique which Devine employed, and he was the first dealer ever to do it, was engage with the media. How, what he used to do was he would call up the local press in New York and tell them that he'd sold a painting. But he wouldn't only tell them how much he sold the painting for. He would also reveal the name of the buyer. More often than not, this made front page news. Which is completely different to today again with the secrecy. Maybe you'll know that a work has been sold at auction for X amount, but you'll have absolutely no idea who the dealer, who the who the buyer was. Not for Devine. And amazingly, his clients loved this because particularly between the new barons and millionaires of New York City and the Americas, it was a way of showing their rivals that they were buying the best art or they had bought something from Devine that was better than perhaps what Devine had sold them. So a lot of ego getting thrown around uh, in Devine's time. And although this might sound shocking nowadays when we think about how the art world works, what accidentally happened was that Devine kick-started the development of everyday art coverage in the media, which went hand in hand with an increase in public interest in the art world in New York. But this is Joseph Devine we're talking about. He didn't do anything unless it benefited him 10 times more than something put him out. So going back to an earlier comment where we mentioned that he used to spy on his clients, he also used to pay members of the media to inform him of potential new clients or new movers and shakers that had come to America or were starting to build a fortune that he could then introduce himself to and gain himself a new client. So he was very clever but this is where it's very sneaky and it depends on how it sits well with you. This is where I think he's just very cheeky. And do you know what? I quite like it. I quite like him for it. <laughs> and it was through all these techniques that he built an incredible rapport with his clients and his company completely took off and he made himself a multimillionaire several times over, which is incredible for a gentleman to achieve. Devine also employed another tactic which was very important for these new barons of insane wealth. One thing that they needed was security and reassurance that they were purchasing a genuine masterpiece. And this led to the art of connoisseurship becoming something more like modern day branding. And people went to Devine because they were assured they would not only be buying a genuine masterpiece from Europe, but they had the Devine seal of approval. And if you were paying over the odd prices, it meant that you were buying something of worth and value, which is kind of similar if we look at today with um, all the different designer labels and things like that, which doesn't, which had started to exist, but not in the same extent that we have today. So I'm thinking of you can buy a bag for a tenner in New Look, but you can also buy a bag for £3,500 from Chanel. And because it's from Chanel and you pay all this money, it's supposed to be of greater quality and just that assurance that your money has been well invested. It, Devine 
employed exactly the same technique as what is used or began that technique. And it's still used today, but across various different sections of the art world. And to further the reassurance and security of a genuine purchase from Devine, he offered his wealthy clients a personal authenticator of their work. And this was a gentleman that he employed called Barnard Benson. Benson was on Devine's payroll, much like that of the staff of his clients who would inform him. Benson would also confirm to Devine's clients that they were purchasing the genuine article for a second, a second opinion and peace of mind, really. And Devine told his clients that you would never buy a work of art without a Benson approval. That's how impressive he was. Benson was arguably the cornerstone relationship which aided Devine's firm to rise to power because it not only offered a second independent opinion or what his clients thought was an independent opinion, Devine's judgment and ability at acquiring quality paintings became so valued that when viewing a work, often Devine's facial expression was enough to authenticate or condemn a work's history, which got him into a little bit of trouble, but we'll get on to that. And I have a lovely quote here from a man called Henry Han that claimed his prestige in the world of old masters and objects to art was such that a simple lifting of his bushy eyebrow was sufficient to damn a painting to the value of less than 30 cents in just about as many seconds. But it would be wrong to assume that Devine's authority remained unchallenged. And he had many rivals within the art world, particularly those operating out of New York. And there was a lot of speculation within society about that questioned Devine and his method of appraisal. These questions too also came from some of Devine's most loyal clients, such as JP Morgan, who famously once tested Devine's knowledge by sending the dealer five Chinese jars in a line and challenged the dealer to identify the fakes. And Devine famously smashed two of the fake vases with his cane, and he was correct. As you do in, in this world, sending your art dealer reels and fakes to test them and identify which ones are, are authentic. Nonetheless, Devine managed to obtain such a reputation that once a painting was handled by the firm, it was forever called a Devine. It also became a clout within society that you have bought or you had purchased a Devine painting. Now, I very briefly mentioned there that Devine's methods of authenticity got him into trouble. And he actually ended up entwined in a lawsuit in 1921 when a client brought a work which she assumed to be from Leonardo da Vinci, which we now know today called La Belle. And it's in the Louvre in Paris. Now, when Labelle was brought to Devine, he instantly dismissed it and called it a fake, which of course condemned the painting and any hope of its owner getting it a good price for a Da Vinci. So in 1921, the owner took Devine to court and wanted a settlement for half a million dollars. This is in 1921. Half a million dollars for basically ruining the authenticity of the painting and her ability to sell it at a good price. And now this is something also that Devine had, had done previously where he would dismiss the authenticity of a work only to buy it himself and then reinstate, reinstate its authenticity. So this is where the dodginess and the sort of question marks start to come in. It was taken to trial and the jury returned an open verdict. 
and Devine agreed to settle the court and paid the client, well, and paid the owner of LaBelle $60,000 plus court fees. This, however, was not the only time Devine had to shell out some money or that he or his reputation in the art world was questioned. And this is where it's difficult to sort of seesaw between he was a very good dealer, but he also had some very dodgy practices. Another good example of this is something that happened to the firm a few years earlier. In 1910, the Revenue Act of 1897 was abolished and this lifted the 20% tax on imported art. Devine's firm, however, had not been paying this tax for years as Devine's uncle had been appointed chief appraiser of imported art by the US government years previously and had been valuing all items sent through the New York docks that were destined for the Devine firm as practically worthless in comparison to rival firms. But no smoke without fire, Devine's clients were completely aware of what he was doing. And this was an additional appeal of buying through the firm. Through a fatal mistake, the whistle was blown on the company's operation and after several arrests, the US government presented the Devine Brothers firm with a $10 million tax back payment and the likelihood of jail sentences for all directors Joseph Devine included. But Devine's clients were fiercely loyal to him as Devine was to them and banker JP Morgan is the hero of this particular story. Morgan, who was petrified that his very good friend would end up in prison, manipulated his powerful connections in the finance world to not only find loopholes within the tax system, which reduced the firm's payment from $10 million to $1.2, but he had enough sway and financial power to, instead of jail sentences, make sure that the board members only had to pay a $10,000 fine each. So... It's nice to know people in high places. But, as I mentioned, it wasn't just Devine's clients that were loyal to him. Devine was fiercely, fiercely loyal to his clients and this favour was returned when the crash of 1929 happened in New York. And a lot of his large banker clients lost an unbelievable amount of money and Devine bought back a lot of his paintings that he had sold to these people at Devine prices. And he even kept some of his clients' works in storage hidden so they wouldn't be seized by the government for tax back, for repayment of money due to them. So again, a little bit dodgy, but it's happened and it's interesting. However, despite all the dodgy dealings and large question marks which surrounded Devine and how he chose to operate his company, there is no denying that Devine did a massive amount for the museum system and how it runs today. Devine actively encouraged his clients to donate their collections upon their death to national museums across America and pitched it to them as it was the ideal win-win situation for them. It not only meant that they would receive that their loved ones would receive a tax break if they donated masterpieces to these incredible American museums, but it would also mean that their name was forever immortalised as the person who donated an incredible work of art to an American museum. And so much so that it's believed that one third of all Renaissance paintings are now in America. And there seems to be a belief that 75% of these are believed to have been handled by Devine himself. 
So he had a massive impact in how collections were formed in galleries and museums in America. But he didn't just have an impact on American museums, he also had a massive impact on British museums because he was a British citizen. Devine donated a lot of money to museums and galleries in the UK, so much so that he was knighted in 1919 for his services to the art and his philanthropy in the art world. His biggest contributions to the UK museum scene came in a donation to Tate Britain for a new wing, which is now known as the Devine Gallery, and which is still in operation today and also for footing the bill for a new gallery in the British Museum, which now house the Elgin Marbles. This is also known as the Devine Gallery. And you've probably walked through them if you've ever visited Tate Britain or the British Museum. You've definitely walked through these galleries and just not known. But his name is forever immortalised in two of the UK's biggest museums. But it doesn't stop there. He kept donating works and because of this, he was made a baronet of Millbank in the city of Westminster in 1927 and raised to the prestige of Baron Devine of Millbank on the 3rd of February 1919. Now, the Devine brothers' firm no longer exists, but arguably Devine is definitely one of art history's standout dealers for his very clever development and client relations and bringing branding into the art world as well as being a dealer that was known for quality and someone that clients kept coming back to because they know they could trust him and that they were loyal to him Whereas before this, that hadn't really existed. People just very much shopped around. And it's something that is employed in the art world today that clients only shop from certain exhibitions every year, such as the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, or people only shop from shop with rather certain dealers in the UK because they trust them and their judgment, even if they don't sell an artist that or they don't represent the estate or work with an artist directly, clients will, will go to their dealer and say, I would like an artwork from this artist, please can you source me one? And they will bend over backwards to keep their clients happy, which is something Devine did. And it may seem strange with the idea of like branding, but I think with all the designer labels and things like that now, it's quite incredible. For me, what really makes Devine stand out is his love of acquiring works and yes he was slightly dodgy in some of his <laughs> some of his um operational styles but I think that it's incredible that he achieved such a status within the art world and for himself back in Britain. Another thing which was very important which I haven't mentioned until now is that his father eventually moved to London and what also made the Devine brothers stand out was that they had two shops operating on two different continents. And by having a presence in London, what it allowed the company to do was ship works of art within a few days from Europe over to New York. So his father could go to Europe and source fantastic works and ship them very quickly over to New York, which was something most dealers in New York did not have. Now, this is just a small overview of some of the things that Devine has done, but there is masses and masses written about Joseph Devine. There is a lot of books written, but if this is something that you're interested in, as well as a blog post on my website, there is a fantastic book called The American Leonardo, which gives you a very good idea of who 
Devine was as a dealer, a friend, a family man and a patron. And I really couldn't put it down. It also details Devine's court case over the American Leonardo, a.k.a. La Belle, which is now in the Louvre in Paris. And it's today it is attributed to Leonardo, but there's still some questioning around if it is or is not a work by Leonardo, which I think is very interesting. Finally, I would just like to say Devine, to me, Although a little dodgy, I think he was just incredibly ballsy and just a really interesting character. And somebody, when I first read about him when I was at university, I was just sort of like, this guy is cheeky. And I don't know what it was. I just I just enjoyed it. I, I just kind of felt like he wasn't your typical art dealer. He kind of came from nothing and made himself, which I, which I love. And yeah, and he got what he wanted. So in my opinion, he very rightly deserves to be one of the greatest art dealers that ever lived. And there you have it, another episode of Joe's Art History Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, rate and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to, as it means that you will never miss another episode and it apparently helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have been inspired by something that you've heard in the podcast today or think someone might benefit from listening, then I would be very, very grateful if you could pass it on. If you'd like to get in touch and discuss anything that was mentioned on today's podcast, you can email me at joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at joesarthistory. My name is Jim McLaughlin, your host and your friendly art historian, and thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time on the Joe's Art History Podcast.